Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. Though my tongue is stilted in disjointed cadence for words I do not yet hold in my chest, I match my breathing to yours to say that I will not forget you. This program features the work of 2021 writer Christy Song. In the first half, you'll hear her conversation with curator E.J. Coe. Welcome, Christy. Can you tell us about your Jack Straw project? Well, first of all, I feel extremely lucky to talk to you because You've been so fundamental to my journey as a writer, but for my Jack Straw project, I've been really interested in just piecing together my family's history, specifically through my parents' marriage, because to me, the circumstances have always been really interesting. They're 13 years apart, and they grew up in completely separate areas of China, And I think when I've talked to people in the past, they kind of see China as this one huge like place that blankets different groups of people within the country. And so my father is from the most northern part of China and my mom's from the most southern end. And so their upbringings and backgrounds are completely different and the dialects are different. The cuisine is very different. And I feel like this, the almost like contradictory nature of their meeting has always really, really inspired my processes when I'm writing. And even when it comes to personalities and things like that, I've always felt like there's so much clashing that goes on. And that really informed who I started to become as I grew up. So My project specifically is a collection of vignettes or like memoir short pieces. And they all sort of have to do with food because food has just always been a really big part of how my parents raised us and told us stories about their families and how they grew up in the different parts that they did. So I'm trying to piece it together. Wow, thank you. I'm wondering how has food taken residence in your narrative in such a big, impactful way and across all your pieces? So a while ago, my dad, after we ate a meal together, he just said this phrase that really stuck with me, and it was, life goes by, which is meal after meal. And it kind of made me think about how we spend our time together. And for my family, we the only time we can really sit down and talk with one another just throughout being busy with our own things and our own priorities as things sort of progress in life, it's only really in mealtimes where we can talk and share our feelings, our thoughts, not super deeply, but at least we can breach the surface of some topics with one another. And whenever my dad recollects stories, a lot of it is based on memories of food 
because for him, I think a big force or pillar of connection that he had with his family, specifically his mother, was through cooking and eating meals together. And when he discusses these things, it also brings into just how different we were raised. And so my dad was raised in a very cold, like physically cold environment. And I think his mom or my grandmother tried really hard to provide for him in ways that he could relinquish these feelings of, or these burdens of being in poverty. And so I think of food as a way to, as a medium almost of sharing love and sharing connection, especially because it's hard sometimes to talk with language because while I am like semi-fluent in Mandarin, I'm not fluent enough to express really weighty things. Like I can't talk about my deep innermost feelings or reflect on these subjects with him because my language just can't catch up to the thoughts. And so I end up just kind of like bumbling around or stuttering and we just end up sitting and staring at each other for a while. And he'll just, he'll just try to nod and be like, okay, I think I understand. And Conversely, like my dad likes to speak in, like he'll use a lot of these Chinese proverbs and stuff, and I'm just trying to understand him, and he'll try to break it down. But for the most part, when we're able to sit down for dinners, he likes to reach into the past and try to share that with us through these dishes and through these fragmented memories, and so with certain meals he'll be like oh your grandmother would make these things for me a lot and these are the differences in how we cook because we didn't have the same ingredients but it carries this sort of love from the past and because my grandmother passed away when I was very young I think it was a year after I was born and so it was really the only way to kind of remember her by and so with photos, I can look at them, but I feel like it's so fleeting in a way because I still don't have these solid memories of her voice or the nuances in the way that she talked or even how she looked. And so when my dad brings into the food that she would make, I feel closer because there is so much preparation and care needed when it comes to making these foods for your family. I've been really drawn to your work, so thank you for submitting. And just the way you write about your intersectional experiences as a queer Chinese-American woman, I'd love to hear more about your experiences and about writing about them? I don't know. I feel like my identity is really just tethered together by a bunch of different things that I never felt super comfortable talking about with my family and with people close to me. And so a medium for where I could really start exploring these parts of myself was through art and writing. And so growing up, I just 
felt like there wasn't an outlet for me to start conversations about some things that were really occupying my mind. For example, like queerness is a really, it's still a subject that is pretty finicky to discuss within my family. And so I haven't been able to really actively sit down and voice my thoughts about this part of myself just because of like offhand comments I've heard and sort of, you know, passing remarks made here and there that just made me feel like, okay, this probably isn't something that I can open up about. But at the same time, just struggling with learning about this part of myself and learning about my culture and trying to form this identity going on out into my, you know, approaching older years or adulthood, it just feels really confusing to try to like discover who I am. And so I really want to be able to begin more exchanges with people openly about these potentially like shameful parts of ourselves. And it really fascinates me to read about it from others. And so I want to also lend my voice to these subjects and start to normalize them so they don't feel so covert when we're trying to figure ourselves out. I just so appreciate you sharing these experiences and so important the way you highlight the diversity within cultures and that, you know, when we think of China or Chinese culture, it's not a monolith, uh, very far from it. And I want to ask you about your interests in inherited trauma and behavioral patterns and mental illness that you also write about and bring up. Yeah, so I went to Macau in 2009, and it was the first time I met any extended family. And we have this aunt there, and her name I think would be translated as, they just call each other like little sister, big sister, things like that. And she was this very, like she presented herself in a way that I had never seen before in a Chinese family. She was really overtly masculine. She had short hair. She dressed in a way that it's like stereotypically boyish and things like that. And I didn't want to assume anything. And I think I was too young to really understand how gender presentation can be so different and can be non-conforming. But at the time I was like, oh, my aunt is so cool. Like, I think she's like the awesomest person I've ever met because she was really rugged and she wasn't afraid to express herself in ways that usually the other women in my family wouldn't express themselves in that way. And so, for example, we, we were walking around in those outdoor sort of markets and they wandered into this, lawn, not lingerie shop, but it was just like bras and things like that. And I remember this conversation between her and my mother and my mom was like, oh, I need to get a bra. And do you want to get a bra too? And my aunt was like, like, why would I need one? I don't care about that. My chest isn't even big enough. Like, I don't care about these things. And so just this like almost flagrant, bold decision-making and attitude on her part was so admirable to me. And I could sort of see hesitation when they tried to discuss 
her love life with her as well. Just, do you have a boyfriend? Are you seeing anyone? And she just would avoid the conversation and she would instead just walk away or talk to me or ask if I wanted to go get ice cream, things like that. And <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay, like, I don't know. I really like spending time with this person. And when we left, I felt like she was that one entity or force that I really wanted to connect with more because I was starting to experience feelings about like gender and sexuality. And even though she didn't discuss these things with me, I felt this strange sense of comfort around her. And I asked my mom once like, oh, so is auntie like, is she gay? Um, I've never really heard her talk about these things or her relationships. And I felt like it was, my mom shut me down instantly and was like, no, like what? That's not, that's not possible. Like she just, she just hasn't, you know, she hasn't found a husband yet. And I keep telling her that if she would just grow out her hair, then she would find uh, an acceptable husband. And I'm like, well, she's posting these things with a woman and it seems like she's in a happy relationship. And my mom was like, what? Like she didn't, it's not so much of, it didn't come out of hatred or intense disapproval. It was more of just ignorance and confusion. And so I think about these things and how we inherit sort of different aspects of identity from different family members and thinking about my own queerness, I think about this aunt a lot. And I wish that we could speak. And I think there could be like communication for us in the future. I just need to brush up on my Cantonese. But it's interesting to see how these things are discussed even within the insularity of a family unit and how I just want to break through it and be able to openly say these things or talk about them more often. Now we'll hear a selection from Christie's live reading. Goldfish Granny. I never learned her real name. She lived in a grand home with a lacquered brown door and a fish tank brimming with puffy red cichlids. Her floors were wooden and glossy, and I would lie on them for hours at a time, thinking of ways I could speak to the fish. With unblinking eyes, they'd approach me from behind the glass and sing bubbles into the water, their pouts opening and closing. You, they said, you, you, you. Well, I'd respond, me, me, me. After I learned how to introduce myself to them, I'd spend the rest of the afternoons trailing goldfish granny. While she tended to the weeds in her garden, I searched for stones and hid the smoothest ones in her pockets. That way, she wouldn't miss me when I had to go home for the day. It would plop out at bedtime, and she would know that I'd been thinking of her. I hoped she knew this. Most afternoons, she would tuck me into bed and brush the hair from my eyes, letting the sunlight trickle onto my lids as I fell asleep. After an hour, I'd wake to the sound of the blender and the sweet smell of banana and milk, her way of showing me she'd missed me too. After sipping at the froth and then gulping down the rest, I'd kiss the jade bracelet at the bedside table 
and joined Goldfish Granny at the front step. She'd helped me slip into a jacket while I fumbled with my shoelaces, glancing at the fish as they laughed at my shoddy efforts. We'd walk hand in hand to the grocery store a few blocks away, sharing this bit of warmth as the sun sank lower into the sky. I'd count the lines on the ground, gripping her hand tight to hurdle myself over the larger cracks. The first time we entered the market, the fish were large and gray, and several were crammed into a single rectangular tank. They butted heads and slapped at one another, mouths gaping and pleading, but I couldn't understand them. Sometimes I'd cry, spluttering, I don't know, I don't know. I didn't know how to end their misery, so I would weep into Granny's stomach while pointing at them. Maybe she knew how to comfort them, just as she knew more Cantonese, knew how to make banana milk, knew how to clean dirt beneath my fingernails, and how to say good child in a way that made me feel like I was born from her own blood. But she'd forgotten how to speak to the sea the same year she left home and moved into this landlocked country. So we rushed to the other aisles and picked out lemon tea, sausages for clay pot rice, green onions, and chicken for soup. After shelling out a few bills, she stuffed the leftover coins into my pocket and we walked home in silence. I counted out two quarters, a dime, and three nickels, their weight the same as the stones I collected for Goldfish Granny. When my parents arrived at nightfall, I bid goodnight to the cichlids. I pressed my hands to my cheeks, mirroring the open-mouthed way they gawked at me, and said, Zaijin, Zaijin, we'll meet again. For Granny, I said, I will miss you. On the car ride home, I foraged my jean pockets for the jangling coins, my treasure, and instead fished out a smooth sliver of granite. In wool, there is you. Ni, ni, ni. And I have one more poem to share, and it's called In the Small Hours Before Dawn. And it's dedicated to my father's home city, which is Harbin in northern China. In the small hours before dawn, your mother wakes early to prepare breakfast downstairs, ate treasure porridge that she stirs in the dark, the loneliest woman in the world. In the early morning, your father leaves to visit Yeye across the street, smoke in one hand, breakfast in the other. You can hear cars on the street now. The world is alive again. In the morning, we stroll through the outdoor market and eat buns filled with fried egg and minced pork. I follow you to school, say hello again and again when your classmates ask me to speak English. When a bell rings announcing morning exercises, I stand frozen as the national anthem begins to play. You swing your arms with ease, singing along, Chilai, Chilai, Chilai. I can't, I whisper. I can't, I can't, I can't. In the afternoon, we sneak cold plums to your room and spit the pits into our palms during these hot summer afternoons. Forehead pressed against forehead, we share secrets and fasten our hearts to stories that transport us to places beyond the bunk bed we share. In the evening, we run through mazes filled with abandoned ping pong tables and scorched cigarette butts. We run until we reach the corner of the city and dive into the mouth of the river that everyone calls Mother. At night, we sit by Mother River and watch people dance to Russian folk music. A woman in green twirls, her arms extended above her head. Under the streetlight, I watch her spin and spin and spin. And in this kaleidoscope of light and motion, 
she is smiling. At midnight, I lie listening to the murmur of your heart and our home. Though my tongue is stilted in disjointed cadence for words I do not yet hold in my chest, I match my breathing to yours to say that I will not forget you. Thank you. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production, produced by Alyssa Keene and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Ayesha Ubiatilaka. Our theme music is by Andrew Weathers, produced in part through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The 2021 curator of this program is E.J. Ko, and the narrator for this podcast is Alyssa Keene. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, Humanities Washington, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Rainier Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to Michael Folks and Cecilia Ayers for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>